to recap because uh, for me, I know when I'm sitting out there, I don't remember necessarily what we talked about the week before. I don't remember what happened to me the day before, let alone what the last week's sermon was about. So uh, I just want to give you a recap of, of where we were at. And the idea behind this series is how do we remain pure hearted and uh, with our minds set and fixed on Jesus in the midst of a pluralistic and what I would say a tolerant society where there's a lot of ways to God. There's the idea of uh, that God is our creator is being challenged. Uh, the world is hostile to that. And even more so, the idea that the only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ and believing in him, uh, that his shed blood on the cross and that his resurrection has provided uh, salvation for me, that's even more uh, pushed back against in the culture. It makes you more, it's, you stand out uh, in the culture. So how do we live in this culture in which God has created us to live in because he's placed us in this world with a purpose? Last week, we talked a lot about how Jesus uh, clearly spoke about this with his disciples and those that would listen to him, that those that would follow him would realize that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, you're a follower of his. He's told you this world is not home to you because God has called you out as his father or as your father. He has called you out. He's given you a new name, a new identity and a new purpose. And he hasn't redeemed you. He hasn't paid for your sin on the cross just so that you would sit on your hands and just wait for Jesus to come back. Like close all the doors, bar the doors up and just sit there and say, Jesus, I'm just waiting for you to come back because I don't want to face this world. That's not why he redeemed you. But as he sent Jesus into the world to display the love of God, so has he sent us into the world. That's the inhabitants of the world, right? Not just the globe, but we're to go to the people and tell them about God's love for them. So that's what we've been talking about. Now, as a believer in Jesus, as you walk through this world, you're going to run into people. You're going to build relationships with people that aren't followers of Jesus. They're just not believers yet. And you're going to run into them. You're going to have relationships with them. That You're going to build relationships with them. And so what do we do with that? How do we handle these relationships that we inevitably are going to have? What do we do with those relationships? Well, God has told us that we love the, love the world, love the people of the world. And for most of us as, as believers, if you've spent any amount of time in the church, you're probably going to say, well, this is an easy answer, Chris. I mean, it's, it's fairly simple because what did Jesus do? Well, he, he loved people. He served people, Right. And that's, we're supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to love others, serve others. It doesn't matter what, what nationality they are. It doesn't matter what religion they are, what orientation they are, right? We're supposed to love them, serve them, care for them. That's what Jesus did. Now, I want to I create some tension in here around this idea because we cannot ignore this tension. And I'm afraid that if we do... If we ignore this tension that comes from Scripture, that it's going to go bad for us. Because Scripture doesn't only tell us to just love those that we're around, but it also gives us some other principles uh, around this idea. And and God's Word tells us uh, this, and this is the big idea for this morning. Bad friends make for a bad life. This is true whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Bad friends make for a bad life. Now, I've made a fair amount of poor choices in my life. 
all of which I have to take full responsibility for. So as I share this story, I don't want you to think that I am pushing blame off on anybody else because I am a big supporter of the fact that we are all accountable for our own sins. We can't try the blame game. Adam and Eve tried that, right? They tried that in the garden when Adam was there and God came to him and said, what happened? And he said, "Uh, the woman that you put with me, it was her fault. And she tried to point down the lane and say, well, it was the serpent. It was Satan that you put in the garden. And he made me take the fruit that you told me not to take. And so the blame game's been tried and it doesn't work with God. Because we all stand before him exposed to take full responsibility. So as I share this, I need to take full responsibility uh, for my own actions. But as I said, I've made a lot of poor choices in my life. And for some reason, most of those poor choices happened between the ages of 16 to 18. I don't know why that's true. But from 16 to 18, I made a lot of poor decisions. If you're in the room and you're 16 to 18, try to make very few decisions because most of them are going to be poor, okay? (laughs) Maybe you should lock yourself in the room and sit on your hands for two years. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm kidding. All right. Uh, but I, I did. I made a lot of poor decisions. One particular evening, I was with some friends of mine, and, and we got bored. We're hanging out. It's through the evening. We get bored. And that's a bad recipe when you have teenagers. You have boredom. You have access to a vehicle and a baseball bat. These are all... Bad. It's just a recipe for disaster. And so we're sitting around, we're getting bored. And, and one of my friends just out of the blue just says, hey, I got a great idea. Let's go, let's go smash the mailboxes. And I'm sitting there thinking right away, I can feel it in my gut. I'm like, this is a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. But unfortunately in that room, it started to pick up steam. Like my other friends are like, oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Let's, let's do that. Let's go smash the mailboxes. That'd be so fun. Now, listen, I've had this happen to me before as a pastor, so I need to just put this out there. Some older people have come to me before when I've shared some of these stories about my past, and they say, Chris, you shouldn't talk about stuff like that because people are going to look at you and say, well, look at him. He turned out all right, right? So it's no big deal. I can go do that stuff. Listen to me. I've done the research on this, all right? If you are caught for smashing mailboxes, it is a felony offense. It is a six-digit fine And you can face jail time for that. So before you start thinking, oh, this is a great idea. Chris got away with it. We can too. Realize that you could spend some time in jail. All right. So as this is happening and and I'm 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 there with my friends, I know this is a bad idea. The first thing I can think of is, well, if I don't swing the bat, I'm not accountable for it. So I don't want to be the one to swing the bat. So I figure, well, I'll be the one to drive. This is another foolish idea because if we're spotted, whose license plate gets turned in? This fool, right? So I'm the one who would be accountable for that. And my friends, I'm sure, would all scatter and say, no, we weren't there. We didn't have anything to do with it. Bad idea. Bad idea. So as I look back on that moment, as I look back on that night, and I think, well, why did I do that? I knew initially, right away when the idea comes up, I'm like, this is bad. And I knew it. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me at that point, but for whatever reason, I pushed it away and I rejected it. Now, was that because I wanted to be accepted? Was that because I was afraid of what those those friends might think of me if I didn't go along with it or if I stood up to them? The influence of others is huge in our life. We need to wrap our mind around this idea this morning. 
Because those friends, their thoughts and their actions had a tremendous impact on my life, the way that I thought, the things that I did. I mean, just for a second, just think about this. How many people, and probably in this room this is true, how many people have have started drinking alcohol in excess because of the influence of others around them? How many people have gone too far sexually or further than they ever wanted to go because of the influence of those around them or one other person around them? Or how many of us have lied to people that we've cared about because of the influence of others? Why do we do that? Well, I think Paul gives us some insight here. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Now, Paul is quoting a famous Greek poet here. He's in, in to speaking to the church in Corinth. And he's telling them about somebody that, or he's quoting somebody that they would have understood, they would have known who this guy was who had said this. And he's pointing out, listen, bad company corrupts good character. And the reason that he's saying this is because in the church at that time, the church had begun to embrace some faulty thinking, some bad decision-making, all right, some poor teaching. And what was being taught, what was being said was, listen, there's no resurrection of the dead. Right? There's no afterlife. This life is all you have. And so right before this verse, he actually says, so if this life is all we have, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry, do whatever we want, because it doesn't matter, because we're not held accountable for our sin. Sound familiar? This is still being taught today. Evolution, right? We've evolved. We've come from some cosmic goo. And so it doesn't matter. You just have this life. You do whatever you want. And Paul is pushing back against this teaching as it's creeping into the church. And he's saying, no, 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 no. If Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, so if Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise again, that means every single one of you and every one of us today is still in our sins. We are still dead in our trespasses and our sin if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And so Paul pushes back against it and he says, no, Jesus did raise from the the grave. There is an afterlife, and we do have to stand before God and give an account. And so he's pushing against that influence of of the culture. Now, Solomon, thousands of years before this, he emphasized this as well. And he says in uh, Proverbs, he says this, Don't befriend angry people. Or associate with hot-tempered people. Listen to how, he, how serious this is. Do not befriend angry people or associate with hot-tempered people. And why? Or you will, be, you will learn to be like them and endanger your own soul. You will endanger your own soul. The people that we invite into our lives, they have a tremendous influence on us. They will impact us. Uh, they will impact the way we think the way we process, and the way we view life. I would say it this way. The people we invite into our lives will either encourage us to pursue the kingdom of God or they will push us towards something else, to pursue something else. And whatever that something else is, it's going to fall short of the glory of God and the purpose that God has redeemed us for. Now, as we look at this this idea of influence, I want to build this case a little bit more before we jump into the text that we're going to be in this morning. 
About 65 years ago, there was a guy by the name of Solomon Ash, and he did an experiment because he wanted to test the power of the influence. He had this idea that, that we would be influenced by people in ways that we didn't even comprehend or understand, so he wanted to test it. So rather than explain this experiment to you, I thought I would show it to you. Now, this video is not from the 50s when Solomon did this experiment. This experiment's been redone and redone and redone. I just pulled this one off of YouTube. And I believe by the dress that the people have and the quality of the video, it's the 70s. Those of you who lived through the 70s, maybe you can tell me if that's actually the 70s. But take a look at this video and then we'll talk about it in a minute. The ash experiment is one of psychology's oldest and most popular pieces of research. A volunteer is told that he's taking part in a visual perception test. What he doesn't know is that the other participants are actors and he's the only person taking part in the real test, which is actually about group conformity. Please begin. The experiment you will be taking part in today involves the perception of line length. Your task will be simply to look at the line here on the left and indicate which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. So, for example... The actors have been told to match the wrong lines. The volunteer will be monitored to see if he gives the correct answer or if he goes along with the opinion of the group and gives the wrong answer. In the first test, the correct answer is to... Uh, one. 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 Two. One. Once again, the correct answer is two. Three. 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 The Ash experiment has been repeated many times and the results have been uh, supported again and again. We will conform to the group. Again, we're very social creatures. We're very much aware of what the people around us think. Uh, we want to be liked. We don't want to be seen to rock the boat, so we will go along with the group. Even if we don't believe what people are saying, we'll still go along. One. 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 Group dynamics is one of the most powerful forces in human psychology. Uh, one, one. Now, I was looking for that video. I found another one, and it was just a little too long to show you, but it, it's uh, the show, What Would You Do? And uh, they did this experiment in a, in a busy building um, where the people are getting on and off the elevator. And they had a group of people that were, of course, in on the, the, the joke, I guess you would say, or the experiment. And they would all get on the elevator and stand and face the back of the elevator. And so inevitably, the one person that's on the elevator that's not a part of this experiment, like by two floors, they're turning around. You know, they're just like slowly turning around. And almost every one of them did it. And then the last part of the experiment, just for fun, they had a guy get on with his iPhone and playing dance music, right? And they had everybody start dancing to the music. And the person who wasn't a part of the experiment starts dancing with everybody else. And they, so they're asking, why, why would you do this? Why would you turn around? It's so odd because you can't see what floor you're on. You know, you, it's just very awkward. And they, every one of them would say, well, I thought that they had some other information that I didn't. Like, I thought they knew something that I, I didn't know. Um, so in 2005, a neuroscientist by the name of Gregory Barnes did a very similar 
similar experiment. But what he did with this time was he actually, because of MRIs, he could scan the brain. And to find out what part of the brain is being active as people are making these decisions. Are they making decisions that are going against their better judgment and they just want to go along with the group? Or is their their, uh, mind being changed? Is their perception of the problem being changed? And what Barnes found was was very troubling that as, as the group started to make decisions, a person, they could actually influence a person's perception. And Susan King uh, comments on this in her book, Quiet, and she says it this way, that peer pressure, in other words, is not only unpleasant, but it actually can change your view of a problem. It actually can change the view of a problem. And 2,000 years ago, Paul knew this, and he pointed it out, and I'll give you the ESV version just for some variety here, but bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. It's not just relationships either, but it's who we're listening to, what's influencing us. And this has monumental implications of us as fo- for, for us as followers of Jesus because we want to be people that bring glory to God. We want to be in his, in his service, right? We want to we please him, not, because, not out of duty, but out of what he's done for us. And yet there's all these influences around us. We have family, we have friends, we have coworkers, we have media, we have social media. Right? You get on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and we see all these things and we're drawn to them. Like, oh, I love the way they do their living room. I'd love to do my living room like that. I never thought that once in my life, I promise, because I don't (laughs) care how people do their living room. But you get the idea. Like, oh, I I like where they're at on vacation. We should go there. That looks so cool. Or they got that car. And all these things just start to influence us. And we don't think about it, but it's influencing us. Right? I'll give you a really great example. You have TV, movies, all these things. How many of us, if we were walking through the park, right? you're walking through a park, and there's a couple on the bench, and they're just, they're just full-on making out, going at it, stuff's coming off, right? And you would call the cops. I think I would. I would be so disturbed, especially if my kids are with me. But now how many of us will watch evening television, right? And that stuff's happening, right? There's people making out, clothes are coming off. And we're watching it and we're numb to it because we see it all the time on the television. But it's influencing us. It's impacting our hearts. Jesus understood this. And I want to go to a passage with you in in the book of Matthew. So if you would, turn with me there, Matthew chapter 16. For some of you, that's going to be page 747. Some of you are going to have a different page. I don't know. Maybe, maybe somebody could interact with me here and yell out the other page number. I don't... Matthew chapter 16. Anybody else get it? Matthew 16? 814, there we go. So it's either 747 or 814. Okay. In my, in my Bible, it's page 920. So, all right. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 5 through 12. Jesus speaking on this issue of influence. Later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered they had forgotten to bring any bread. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And at this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Isn't this funny? They forgot the bread. Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they start getting at one another. And they forget who they're on the boat with. It's Jesus. Jesus doesn't need you to bring a, he doesn't need your stuff, right? He doesn't need you to bring the bread along because he's the one who can make the bread. 
You didn't bring any water. He can change that water out of that lake into fresh water. He could change it into wine if he wants. He doesn't need your stuff. So look, he's frustrated with them. Verse 8, Jesus knew what they were saying. And he says, oh, you have little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 that I fed with the seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again, I say to you, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then their minds opened up and they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast of the bread, but he was speaking about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what's he getting at here? He's talking about the influence of others. He's talking about the influence that these teachers of the law had during that time. Watch out for it because what these guys were preaching was not the gospel. It was a works-oriented salvation. You had to do more, work harder to please God. And that teaching has hindered the church to this day. And it's false. It is not the gospel. Jesus says that we can have salvation through him and him alone, through his blood shed on the cross. So my, my faith in his grace alone is the only way that I have salvation. It's the only way that I stay in the kingdom of God. It's not get saved, work harder. But I put my faith in Jesus and I trust in him every single day of my life. So we need to be aware of what we're listening to. Who's speaking into our hearts? Who's influencing us? What friends are we inviting to speak into us and into our hearts? And here's the thing. God has not left us on our own in this. God has not left us without guidance and direction. He's told us where true north is, right? I got a compass there on the left for those of you in the older generation. I put the GPS on the right for those of you in the newer generation that don't use compasses. I think there's one on there, your smartphone if you'd want to get it out and look at it. But God has told us where true north is. God's given us his word as truth. And if we would just come back to it, we would spend time there, that it would overwhelm us, that it would influence us more than anything else. Because Jesus said this in John 17, 17. We talked about this verse last week. Make them holy, Father, by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. So we have truth. We know what is real. We know what is reality, and it's in the word of God. He's taught us. So how do we blend how do we do this thing of, of blending this idea that bad friends make for a bad life with the clear teaching or the clear life that Jesus lived? Because Jesus hung out with tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, and cheaters, right? Those are the people that he hung out with. Those are the people he spent time with. So how do we blend these two ideas? Well, I want to take a minute and look at a passage in uh, Peter with you. And it comes out of, uh, we're going to look at First Peter chapter 4. Uh, So we'll turn to to page 936 again for some of you. (laughs) Others will be on a different page. So 1 Peter chapter 4. Now Peter was one of the, uh, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was one of the the, the starters of the early church, all right? He was there from the beginning uh, as the church was getting formed and he was uh, very instrumental in that. So as he writes to the church, he writes with a lot of passion, of course. And so here's what he says in 
in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So then, since Christ suffered physically, all right, so we know that Jesus suffered physically. When he was here on this earth, he took a beating beyond what any of us can even describe. And when he went to the cross, of course, there was a great amount of suffering in that. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be crucified. So Jesus suffered in his physical body. Listen to what Peter says. You must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had. Now that word arm, that's a military term. That means prepare yourselves for battle. How many of us walk through this life as believers, as followers of Jesus, with a mindset that I am going into a battlefield? That I am not in peacetime anymore. That I am I'm actually in war with this world. As Matt Chandler says that we are haunted or we are stalked by our enemy, right? Satan stalks and he comes to kill and destroy us. And then we're haunted within us by our flesh, our worldly desires, right? So Peter, reminding the church, says, arm yourselves, get ready to do battle. And so what are we supposed to arm ourselves with? The same attitude as Christ Jesus, or the same attitude that he had, and be ready to suffer too. Wow. Be ready to suffer too. Now, what was the attitude that Christ Jesus had while he was on this earth? I think this is so important to understanding this. What was his attitude? His attitude was constantly... Your will, Father, not mine. Your will, Father, not mine. Remember when he was in the garden? The the night before he was about to go to the cross and he's wrestling with God. He's saying, if there's any other way we can do this, let's do it that way. But if not, your will be done, not my own. How many of us have spent time just pounding on the door of heaven trying to change the will of God rather than embrace the will of God? We're trying to change God's heart rather than saying, all right, God, if this is what you have for me, I give. I might not like it, but I give because your will is greater than my will. I trust you completely. And I can remember many times in my life where I'm pounding on the door of heaven saying, God, change this. I don't like this. Something has to change here. And then I get mad at God because I'm like, God, why didn't you change it? Why didn't you do something about it? And the whole time he's looking at me saying, that wasn't my will. So I think we need to be ready, armed with that attitude of a servant. Like, all right, God, you've put me here for a purpose. I want to do your will, not mine. Now, this past summer, I read a book, uh, that has really impacted me. It was Lone Survivor by Marcus Luttrell. And for those of you who know his story, he was a Navy SEAL, is a Navy SEAL, was a Navy SEAL. And uh, he was caught in Afghanistan with three of his, his fellow soldiers in an ambush from the Taliban. Hundreds of Taliban fighters against four Navy SEALs. And as he tells the story, and as I read in his book, I was amazed by his, his heroic effort. And I think about why did he survive? Certainly it was the grace of God on his life. And you can see that he actually talks about it in his book. But it was beyond that too. I mean, it was all the preparation that he had done. No soldier walks onto the battlefield without the right gear, right? 
They have the right gear, but also the preparation, the time that he put in. And most of his book, the first half of his book, he writes about what Navy SEALs go through to be put into the battlefield. And as I read it, I was shocked. I couldn't survive one day in Navy SEAL training, let alone the amount of time that he put into it. But one of the things that stood out to me was that as he was fighting these, the, the, the multitude of fighters that were coming at him, his mindset, what they had taught him, not only prepared him for physically, but his mindset helped him survive because his mindset said, I am a Navy SEAL. I am one of the greatest fighters in the world. And it's going to take a lot for them to take me down. His mindset was critical to his survival. Because if that had been me out there, I would have folded right away because I wouldn't have had that same training. I wouldn't have had the right mindset to be able to say, you know what, I can take this on. So I think as we arm ourselves for battle, we need to arm ourselves with the same attitude, that mindset that Christ Jesus had. So let's keep going here. You move into verse, uh, we'll finish up verse one there. He says, arm yourself with the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives cleansing or chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. Be anxious to do the will of God. So when I've tasted the goodness of God, when I've seen his glory and his grace, when I've been confronted with the gospel, the fact that I am a sinner in need of Jesus, and Jesus has cleansed all my sin, it changes my mindset. And the things of this world start to fade away. It becomes, you know what? I don't want to go out and smash mailboxes anymore. I don't want to have those conversations that I was having before. Because my heart has changed. My mindset has changed. He goes into this in verse 3. You have had enough in the past of the evil things that God, godless people enjoy. Their immorality, their lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties. And their terrible worship of idols. Of course... Your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. Of course. Now, other translations would translate this. The the Gentiles or the pagans, those that don't know God, find it odd when you don't plunge into the same things that they do. You don't run to the same things for comfort. You don't worship the same things. Now, one of the things that I was realizing when I was uh, hanging out with those friends was that I was a person who would have said I was a Christian at that point. When we were doing that at 16, 17, 18 years old, I would have said that I was a Christian. And back then there was this statement and people wore it all over their wrists. It said, WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? And I thought, well, Jesus would hang out with these guys because Jesus wants to make a difference in their lives. He wants to impact them. True. But here's the difference. Jesus would make a drastic impact in their lives and he would influence them. Where the reality is, as I look back on those relationships, I wasn't making any impact in their lives for God at all because I was more interested in being accepted by them. And so when you're more interested in being accepted by them and approved by them, you don't push in or push back against some of those things. And I'll give you some examples of this just so you can understand what I'm getting at here and, and how I think that here's the tension of this. Right? How do we live in this world with, with these convictions as Christians and still interact with the world and not alienate the world, but love the world? Because that's what Jesus did. 
So how do we do that? Well, if we look at Jesus' life and examine his life and the way he interacted with people, I think we can learn some things. I'll give you three examples real quickly. John chapter 4, all right? The woman at the well, this famous story of this woman at the well. And Jesus is coming to her and he's telling her uh, about life, right? And he says to her, go and get your husband and we can talk about it. And she says, but I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. The man that you are with now is not your husband. And in fact, you have had five husbands. Now, he's not speaking condemnation to her. We have to understand that as as you look at the way she responds, she isn't beat up. She doesn't take it as condemnation. She's like, wow, you must be a prophet. So he doesn't condone the lifestyle, right? He loves her, but he pushes back against the lifestyle. Go to John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, right? Again, he doesn't condemn her. There's not condemnation in her voice, in his voice, but what he does is he shows her his love. And then he also says, go and sin no more. So he pushes back against the lifestyle. Uh, Matthew 19, last one I'll share with you. The rich young ruler, guy with all kinds of money, comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you. What do I got to do? Jesus, they go through some conversation there and eventually Jesus gets to the point and he says, well, all you got to do is go sell all your possessions and follow me. And the man turns away and we don't know what happens to him. But again, Jesus pushes back a little bit, doesn't condone the lifestyle, pushes back. He's influencing them. He's pushing them towards the grace of God and he's not being influenced by them. And that's because he has a proper perspective. He has the perspective of this world is not my home and I'm here on a purpose. I'm here on a mission. And God's love for us must overflow to love for others. When we find or embrace God's love for us, it will overflow into our love for other people. Look at with me here. We'll finish up verse, uh, verse five. But remember that they will have to face God. So will we. Who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead? And that is why the good news, the gospel, was preached to those who are now dead or who have died. So although they were destined to die, like all people, they will live forever with God in spirit. How is it loving to never point out that those people that we know that are walking through this life as not follow, they're not following Jesus, how is it loving not to point out that they will stand before their creator someday and have to give an account for their lives? How is it loving not to point them to Jesus and say, listen, Jesus has provided salvation for you. It's a free gift. Believe on his grace. Surrender yourself to him. And see, here's the thing. In our politically correct world today, we've bought into the lie that it is in some way unloving to tell people that you disagree with them. Especially when it comes to the lifestyle. And, the, the, and this is what we would talk about when we talk about intolerance or tolerance. I want to show you a quote from uh, Rick Warren. He, ta- he comments on this and I think he says it well. He says, today tolerance has been changed to mean all ideas are equally valid. That's nonsense. All ideas are not equally valid. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. 
Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise, com- compromise conviction to be compassionate. And I believe Jesus did that best. Jesus didn't apologize for sin. He didn't condone sin. He doesn't ever condone sin. He doesn't avoid it. But he goes right at it with compassion, grace, and conviction. Conviction. As followers, we're on the same mission. We aren't here to make friends with the world. We're not here to make friends with the world. James chapter 4 would tell us about that. But Jesus, in every one of his relationships, from the disciples to the Pharisees to the sinners and the saints alike, he had a mission, and that mission was to pull them towards the grace and mercy of God. So I want to give you three practical takeaways. What do we do with this? So I want to give you a question to ask yourself, a couple questions actually. As you evaluate your life, your interactions with others, and I would say believers and non-believers alike, ask yourself a couple important questions. The first one is, am I staying centered in God's word? Am I staying centered in God's word? Remember the compass, true north. Jesus gives us his truth and God gives us his truth and his word. So we can always know what is reality and what is false if we are spending time in God's word and and hearing from him. The second is, do I have other believers in my life who are influencing me towards God's glory? Do I have other people in my life that are followers of Jesus that are pushing me towards his glory, pushing me to pursue the kingdom? Not my kingdom, but his kingdom. And the final question, is my goal in my relationships with non-Christians gospel-centered? Is it intentional? Is it intentional? Am I intentionally going into those relationships saying, I love this person so much, I do not want to withhold this valuable information about Jesus, this essential information about who I am, who God has created me to be, and about this reality that Jesus has come to provide salvation. So am I withholding that, or am I going into that relationship saying, you know what, I want to be intentional? And as I thought about this week, there's a lot of repenting that I need to do in my own heart about my relationships with with non-believers that I just have been lax in saying, you know what, this relationship, God's given me influence in this person's life for a reason. And it's so easy to fall back into that default mode of, hey, I just want to be liked. I don't want to rock the boat here. I just want to be loving. But God didn't set us free for that reason. God sent us in on this mission into the lives of others to make an impact. That's why Jesus often talks about being the light of the world or the salt. There should be a little salt there. It should grind a little bit against those in your life who aren't believers. So my, my challenge for us is that as we walk with our, our friends, as we think about what's influencing us, Be very cognitive, be very uh, aware of what is influencing us. How am I being influenced and how can I influence others for the grace of God? Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help on this. Oh God, what a big mission that you've given us to, to walk through this life. Father, sharing your love with others. I thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. I thank you that you've given us Jesus, that you've cleansed us of our sin and our unrighteousness. Father, will you give us boldness? And as I think about that song that we sang not that long ago about you make us brave. 
Father, help us to embrace this understanding of what your gospel has done in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would keep us from negative influences, uh, negative influences, keep us from the enemy and help us to, to constantly be chasing after you, seeking your glory, seeking your kingdom. And may we lead others to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.